Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The people that actually have a negative side effect to these vaccines are very, very few as compared to the overall population that may have some pain in their arm, may feel the sniffles for a couple of days, and then they're just fine. So I would encourage people to think about how we think about risk in our daily lives. We have more risk of death when we cross the street or drive a car than we do with the COVID vaccine. Yet, we've gone through this whole sigmoid curve of low resistance to the vaccine, listening to anecdotal evidence by people, other aunties and uncles that we might know, kind of, sort of, that had a thing or two happen, even though nothing has happened to us, right? Ultimately, the people that may be affected by some of these negative externalities are very, very few in comparison to the broader population that is ultimately saved from the effects of long COVID and other fatal impacts. My name is Urvashi Patnagar, and I'm a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're talking to Dr. Urvashi Bhatnagar, a healthcare executive whose career spans clinical care, research, and advocacy. And she's the co-author of the new book, The Sustainability Scorecard, How to Implement and Profit from Unexpected Solutions. Dr. Urvashi focuses on bringing new and innovative solutions to market that advance access to care, clinical outcomes, and affect the total cost of care. Dr. Urvashi holds an MBA from Yale University and a doctorate of physical therapy from Boston University. She's a certified clinical instructor for DPT students and has served as faculty during the American Congress of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation in 2021 and has served as an invited speaker at the United Nations in 2020. And this was a really special episode sponsored by our friends, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. As we're in the thick of the holiday season, making time to catch up with friends and family, it's time to update your COVID vaccine. That's right. Beyond just making time to share that home cooking you've been craving, it's also time to update your COVID vaccine. Updated vaccines now protect against the original COVID virus and Omicron. They're here just in time to make those family gatherings safer and extra special. You can find and schedule your updated COVID vaccines for everyone who's over the age of five, at vaccines.gov, we can do this. But back to today's guest, Dr. Urvashi Bhatnagar. You know, Sharon, we love talking to healthcare providers on this show. We do. And we love them, especially if they've gone to Ivy League schools and they love their <laughs> parents. <laughs> it just makes us feel like we've kind of accomplished something. 
<laughs> and while we definitely had a great chat with Dr. Urvashi about COVID prevention and how it relates to her work and experience every day, we also got to go beyond just her day job for a bit to talk about her work in practical, scalable solutions to impact climate change and even chocolate and gardening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it was a really fun one. So we hope you enjoy our fun and ranging chat with our new friend, Dr. Urvashi. Urvashi, it's such an honor to have you today. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? I'm good. We've been, uh, you and I have been exchanging emails for a while, and I know a little bit about you, and a lot of our guests have probably heard of you, but would love to get a better sense of where are you from? Yeah, I'm actually from New Delhi, India, and I'm really from there. <laughs> I was born there. <laughs> What? <laughs> Wait, hold on, hold on. So when you're in a grocery store and someone's like, hey, isn't it great to meet you for the first time. And they say, so where are you from? You say New Delhi. New Delhi. Yes, okay. I do. <laughs> <laughs> Although sometimes, you know, like sometimes I'll end up somewhere, you know, where they say, oh, well, you don't sound completely Indian or, you know, some some version of that. And I say, well, you know, I grew up in New York on Long Island for a period of time. And I spent a long period of my life in the United States while I was growing up and now. So they're like, oh, okay, so you're from, you're a New Yorker. And, and I'm like, well, I, I guess, but I was born in <laughs> India. <laughs> you may be, I don't know if you're the only, but you're one of the very few because, you know, most people are like, I'm from wherever they last were, right? Or like wherever they spent most of their childhoods. And you're just like, nope, there's no follow-up question. Then it's like, okay, well then that's great. How, how old were you when you came over to the States? I was around five. I actually came over because I had an accident. So I was here for medical care, oddly enough. And the United States was the closest area to where I had my accident, which was in international waters and on a ship. So I was airlifted to the United States and I was here specifically for treatment and then went back to India oh. when that was over. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like a big deal. What what happened? Well, I, I was a very curious child, put my hand in a motor. A on motor. My, yes. <laughs> and now that I have a son, like I have an 18 month old, I yeah. sometimes look at his hands and I think, oh my God. I mean, what a miracle of medicine that yeah. they were able to transfer nerves and like physical therapy and all of this kind of stuff. And here we are today with two hands that work perfectly fine and no difference between the one that was previously injured and now. Oh my goodness. But, yeah. But yeah, that's, that's what happened. My dad was in the merchant Marine and he was an engineer and we were there on vacation with him. And so I was just a curious child running around and stuck my hand in a motor and yeah, got injured, airlifted to the U S where I had, about six or seven surgeries and around 12 years of physical therapy. And all that to say, I mean, I think I had an amazing outcome. I'm so yeah. lucky and so privileged. Like I had an amazing family around me, relatives that completely supported me. I had great medical care. How many people are so lucky? And yeah. it actually gave me a really positive outlook towards the healthcare profession. So breaking away from most people that are, you know, pressured by their Indian parents to get into medicine or healthcare in some way. Yeah. That wasn't my story. I just fell in love with it because I first, I oddly enough saw it working very well and I yeah. got exposure to the whole ecosystem. Very early on. And so, mm -hmm. so you spent 12 years in the U.S. as you were, as you were, uh, yeah, they're about physical therapy. Yeah. 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 
And when that happened, so were your parents, I'm, I'm making assumptions, but were your parents here with you and then did other family come over or did you already have family here that you were staying with at the time? Yeah, I had family here already. And so that was incredibly helpful. And my parents were with me. So I, I ended up growing up in this big joint family situation, as we say in the dish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and where what was that, that exactly? Like, where did you guys settle? When, when that was going on. Yeah, so we were in Long Island. Okay. I'm pretty familiar with Long Island. I didn't grow up on Long Island, but pretty familiar with it. And I would say it's kind of homogenous, depending on what areas you're in, right? So what was your what was your neighborhood like when you were Yes, I think Long Island's really changed. And that whole area like Long Island and even, you know, New York as a whole, I think I've traveled a fair bit in the state, has really changed in terms of demographics. But where I was in West Islip was predominantly white. I was one of a few brown kids in, you know, in my elementary school and then middle school. But there were a variety of ethnicities. I think it was predominantly white, but I, it wasn't like my husband, for example, who was born in the U.S. but grew up all over the South. And he has so many stories of being the only Indian kid in an entire school district or something like that, wherever he went. That that definitely wasn't my scenario. What are some of those early memories being being in Long Island? Obviously, you were one of many brown kids, but and, and even beyond that, just like... As you kind of contrast, and I, I've been doing this more and more so lately, contrasting the way my kids are growing up versus the way I grew up and the things I did, what, what are some of those earliest memories in Long Island? You know, I had a really great group of friends that lived around me and that my most of my memories are tied to those four or five people, one of whom actually was like my bridesmaid and like is so involved with my kid and like we're just we're such good friends even now and we stayed in touch throughout our lives and so a lot of my memories are tied to like this group of friends that I had that we all lived in the same neighborhood and we ran around and played outside no matter the weather and I had to be pressured into doing my homework because I just wanted to go out and play all the time but that's a lot of my memories which I really cherish and I agree with you Raman so I look at my son now for example and especially because he was born in the pandemic I mm -hmm. he's certainly not I mean, my memories are from when I was five or mm -hmm. thereabout. And he's, too, I think he's too young maybe to have those kind of permanent memories. But I think now about how people are so tied to their devices and technology and things like that, that I've been really intentional on focusing on things that were part of my childhood, but are not as easy to get in his childhood. So, like what? So for example, I've... When he was born, a lot of people said, you know, well, it's COVID and blah, blah, blah. And so in order to be safe, maybe it's better to have a nanny in the beginning. And I understand, and I'm a healthcare professional, I absolutely see the risks and all of that. But we were really intentional and we started him in daycare when he was around eight months, primarily to socialize him and to make sure that he got, like we chose a daycare that had a lot of outside time because I wanted him to have a lot of exposure outdoors. I wanted him to be around other kids. And I, of course, wanted like a safe and sanitized environment where people are tested regularly and that kind of thing. But that's just one example of how I've tried to correct for the difference between his and my childhood. It's kind of a really accurate point. They Right now, while they are experiencing things, they're remembering things day to day, month to month, 
kind of these memories right now, call it zero to five or hours, right? As parents. And I think a lot about that in contrast, like I don't, you know, a couple of glimpses of memory somewhere between three and five for me, but, um, you know, zero to five is my parents' memories of me. Like yeah. I don't have that, you know, I might get to look at some pictures and I don't really need to, but I, that's, I really kind of take the first five seriously. Other people say, well, they don't matter. I mean, they do matter and you should enjoy them, but it's, they matter more because two people aren't remembering them only, or sorry, you know, the kids and the parents aren't remembering them. Only the parents are going to remember them. And I think a lot about socialization too, because we, we started daycare much earlier for that, for that exact same reason, even though it was the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. So b- back to you gr- growing up in Long Island and you kind of already touched on this, but what did you want to be when you grew up? Or was it just always a straight line into healthcare because of those early experiences? Yeah, you know, interestingly, that's I, I think that's the, what I find interesting about my career is that throughout my youth, like when I was even five or 10, it just never changed. I always wanted to be in healthcare in some way. I wanted to be a doctor and that was it. I didn't know anything else. Like I didn't know what kind of doctor I wanted to be. I didn't know what kinds of doctors there were besides hand surgeons and orthopedic surgeons. And, but within my ecosystem of like healthcare providers, I thought that my hand surgeon had a really cool job and he was stitching, you know, nerves and other parts of the body together. And I thought that was really cool. And I'd like to do that for the rest (laughs) of my life. (laughs) So, so, So that was my goal. And, you know, when I was in India, I kind of fell into physical therapy and I'm, glad that I did. It's been really rewarding to be part of patient care journeys at this intimate level because physicians, you know, they drop in at key points of of recovery, but other care providers in the ecosystem, like your nurses and physical therapists, occupational therapists, the multidisciplinary care system, as we call it, those are the people that you're with every single day or several times a week. And so I really enjoyed, you know, being part of that journey with patients. And I've been able, I think I've, because of that, I've been able to see the different routes recovery takes. Mm-hmm. It doesn't look the same for everybody, even if you have the same diagnosis or set of diagnosis. Oh, it feels like you have that kind of longer view given kind of the more touch points that you're, you're having w- with your patients. Exactly. Exactly. I have to ask, I mean, obviously, you know, we're all kind of in this kind of accelerant midpoint of our career in different careers and different fields, but you being in healthcare over the last couple of years, I don't know if you heard, but there was, there is, is this kind of pandemic that's been going on. How has that affected the way, because again, there's kind of a high touch nature to the way you do your work. How, how has that been impacted by the pandemic over the last couple of years? Yeah, it's such a great question. So I was still actively treating in the beginning of the pandemic when there was no vaccine. And at that time, so we were wearing full PPNE and everything with the face masks and outer coverings and gloves and everything. And that was definitely a big change from how we were treating before, which was maybe a mask, but just gloves usually. So we definitely went beyond standard precautions in the initial part of the pandemic. And I actually stopped being involved in active patient care, I'd say just before the vaccines came out, because I was pregnant. And my doctor was just told me, you know, it might be a little risky. It was already kind of a risky pregnancy for me. And we were just concerned about exposure and things like that. So that's when I paused patient care, like professionally. But 
Yeah, that's exactly what we were doing. We were in full PPNE. And despite that, I think it was just such a transmissible virus. And we didn't know much about it at the time. And there was no vaccines. And so there was fear. And then there's Mm -hmm. fear on behalf of your patients, too, who are concerned about letting people into their rooms and talking to them, things like that. So there was a lot more focus on patient education. And, you know, there was a lot of focus on trying to get people independent and progressing towards their functional goals as fast as we could, of course, safely and within the bounds that they could tolerate. But yeah, that's well, you said something you said something really interesting there independently, right? Mm-hmm. It's we all kind of had to find ways to do things a little bit more self sufficiently and by ourselves. But that's not always easy. It's it's easier for kind of those of us in positions of privilege, right? With, with money, good health, honestly. But so how did you, how did you pull your patients along to kind of take that independent leap? You know, Roman, I would say a lot of this is patient education and Mm -hmm. family education. I was working in a memory care facility at the Mm -hmm. time, and that's a really interesting population to work with because a lot of times it's dementia. Sorry, what what does that mean for the rest of us? Yes, so memory care facilities are essentially like nursing homes or skilled nursing facilities or something like that where you predominantly have a population that's affected cognitively. So it's, they could have dementia or Alzheimer's or, you know, any of those kind of diseases that affect their memory. And so depending on which stage of their diagnosis there are, sometimes you're able to have a very normal back and forth with your patient where you give them an instruction they understand and they're able to follow through on that. And then at other times, if they've progressed a little further in their condition, they may not be able to understand what you're asking of them, they might be very fearful because they're relying on their emotion centers for decision-making and their frontal lobe, the part of their brain that's responsible for decision-making and motor control, that's not functioning as well as the emotion center. So a lot of it is about how you come across and you're speaking in a very calm tone of voice. You involve their family so that they get this sense of confidence and trust in who they're working with for their medical care. So it became a lot more Oddly enough, it involved the whole ecosystem. And that's what we always say in healthcare, right? You always want to involve the family in any one person's diagnosis, whether whether you have a knee fracture or you have dementia, you, you want to involve everybody that is close to the person so that you can educate the entire support system. And so in our attempt to make the person as independent as possible, we actually ended up involving more people and actually moving more firmly towards how care should be delivered because of the constraints that we had because of the pandemic. I have a related question to that. So did you see any different impacts or longer term effects from patients that did get COVID and were recovering from COVID? Because as you were talking about memory function, I know something I, I definitely experienced while having COVID and even after was just brain fog, right? Like it took a while for me to get back to my normal self. And I didn't even, at the time, I didn't realize that that it was even happening. It's like, I didn't even realize I had so much brain fog until it fully passed. And I'm just curious, like from your, from seeing patients and, and whether it's motor ability or kind of mental acuity, 
things that you were seeing in that perspective. Absolutely. So thank you for touching on that. And that's something that I recognize. So I had COVID as well once or twice, and I noticed that with myself, right? I had brain fog. And so I think because of my lived experience, when I was working with a dementia population, I understood that, okay, you know, pre-COVID, this person was able to follow through on my instructions and they were able to understand what I was saying, but they just had a two-week or three-week bout of COVID. Post that, just not cognitively performing the way that they used to before, three weeks before. And that just seems like too quick a progression for their actual diagnosis or their primary diagnosis, which is dementia. So it's obviously that slowdown is probably related to the brain fog that comes with COVID and things like that. And that's also, I mean, it definitely created some challenges in in individuals' long-term recovery or their return to function or whatever their goal was. Because, I mean, this is a population that has a lot of comorbidities or basically secondary conditions that impact their primary condition. So they might have dementia, but they might also have like hypertension and diabetes and a lung issue or something like that. So they're they're complicated individuals to treat that would have required a lot of attention and care, even if COVID was not in the picture. And so, right. right. And so once COVID is there, these people are predisposed to long COVID, as we call it now. And so we see these long-term effects where we would we would start introducing things that I would have otherwise done in like a step down unit after an IC, which is like a respiratory, like Mm -hmm, respiratory mm -hmm. care and respiratory therapists and stuff like that. We were actively monitoring their like partial pressure, pressure of oxygen just to make sure that it didn't fall below a certain level while they were walking. And before COVID, I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have continuously monitored somebody's oxygen level while they were walking from their bed to their bathroom. You know, if there wasn't, a reason to monitor it. So there was a lot more continuous monitoring for these patients because they got winded so easily. And those symptoms lasted for a long time. And it, you know, it affects your general health and wellness. And I'm part of this very active community of research. I must shout them out because they do such incredible work. So the, yeah, the American Congress of Rehab Medicine, ACRM, they're a very, very well-known organization in the physical medicine and rehab world. They're an extremely long-running journal, and their aim is to accelerate the pace at which research is conducted and then how quickly it's transmitted into everyday practice for clinicians across PM&R, medicine and rehab. And so they started a whole COVID focus and they've published cognitive rehab manuals and things like that. They have a patient frailty group and there's just so much robust information that we've been able to gather in a short period of time about patients such as this dementia population or otherwise that is frail, that is already frail, but then once they're impacted with COVID, all of their goals take so much longer to achieve with far more attention and monitoring, with far more interventions from Mm -hmm. multidisciplinary providers. So it no longer becomes straight shot 
six-week protocol to do A, B, and C. Now it is a three-month journey with advanced monitoring and patient education and family education and all kinds of things. And that's a big burden. It's a burden for the patient because it's challenging. They're going through something that is extremely difficult. It's a burden for the for the entire family because they're they were previously supporting this patient emotionally and physically and otherwise sometimes financially but now they're doing that even more so and then the whole total cost of care increases because that same journey that was taking a shorter period of time is now taking a longer period of time so the health system is burdened because they now have to spread those same dollars that they were getting from insurer over a longer period of time and at the end of the day then you also have burnt out care providers that are working overtime. So the whole system is stressed. And then you factor in things like vaccine hesitancy. And pre-vaccine, when I was in everyday care, it was so hard for me to understand why someone would not get the vaccine. I felt like I had read the research I was among a community of physicians and other care providers that we, that all understood the importance of this. And I was in my own little echo chamber that completely understood that this was important and necessary. We needed to have this vaccine. We needed to have every booster. Our patients needed the same. That was just the end of the story. But uh, well, it, it, why, why, why isn't it that simple, right? Yeah. I, right. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Why can't everybody just do what the doctor tells them to do? Why not? <laughs> well, no, but it's not even it's not even that. It's I'm not a doctor, right? Sorry, mom and dad, but it's just like the data, the facts kind of bear them out. Here's this terrible alternative that we've just been living through this hell for, right? On so many levels and and seeing deaths and etc, cetera, etc, cetera, and the threat of long covid. And all of a sudden, here's this miracle this technology that just kind of, and and I I get, I don't want to say I get the hesitancy, but it's just like, we've just gone through hell. Here's a solution. The solution works and it's proven and it's safe. I I guess I have to ask this, the question this way, what was driving the hesitancy in, in your mind with your patients? Because I'm in isolation with myself and my own opinions, but patients who need it, especially patients who who had these other conditions and these comorbidities, as you say, what, with those that had the hesitancy, what was driving that? And more importantly, how did you address that as a caregiver? Yeah, that's such a great question. So I'd say one, let me let me get into what drives hesitancy because it's interesting. I was speaking with one of my advisors in my MBA and I, I, I was surprised that this that a non-medical professional was the person that challenged my echo chamber assumptions. But now, of course, in hindsight, that makes perfect sense. Where they said, well, isn't hasn't vaccine hesitancy always existed? We're just going through our first pandemic, but the world itself is not. The human race has gone through multiple pandemics. In fact, this is not the first time that the human race has dealt with vaccine hesitancy. So I thought that was a really interesting observation. And it reminded me of, before I came to the U.S. for my work, I interned at the WHO, the World Health Organization, and specifically I was working on polio. And that was that was a lot of my work after my undergrad, during my, during my undergrad residency. I worked in India's 
largest and it still exists. It's mm-hmm. most active polio ward. And now they focus more on post-polio syndrome and reconstructive surgeries and things like that because polio is eradicated. But it's the same thing, right? What happened is that when you think about how vaccines started, it started with smallpox. And essentially what happened is that somebody found out that if you take the smallpox virus from a pus of a cowpox blister Mm -hmm. and you put Mm -hmm. it in an open wound of a child, they developed this ability to not get smallpox. And so if you think about it now, if that person was, if if we were, if let's say vaccines were never, were not out, there was not such a thing as vaccinations. And you and I today in 2022, going into 2023 now are sitting here and somebody tells us, you know what, what you should do is go to the cow and get the (laughs) pus from their cowpox blister and put it on my old arm. (laughs) Related, unrelated, as a person who loves cheese, when you think about no, how no, it's no, made no. and you're Please like, who came up with me. this? No, no, Who's, no. Who stared at this thing and decided, hey, let's do this. Let's rot some milk, oh. make it hard and eat it, and it will be delicious on bread. You but may, yeah, have, you may have just ruined cheese for me forever. Forever. <laughs> no, but it, it's so funny you, you frame it that way, Orvashi, because it's like, I guess I get it, but at the same time, I don't because we're standing on the backs of previous history and experience. So, so were you seeing that hesitancy or what did that hesitancy exist with the polio vaccine? I mean, it was declared eradicated in 2019, I believe. So like, yeah, did that hesitancy still exist in kind of the modern era? I mean, obviously it does to, to your earlier point, but I'm still trying to unpack it more. Yeah. I would say that the hesitancy exists, but it exists more from the political lens. I think it has to do with that big, capital letter trust. I have heard that throughout my profession. When I was in when I was in this government hospital in India treating polio patients, it was all about, well, you know what? Indira Gandhi, who was the prime minister of India when this when the polio vaccine was rolled out for sure. the first time, well, you know, Indira Gandhi actually sent in the army to forcibly vaccinate people. And you know what? They had some side effects from that. And right. blah, blah, blah. And the and you know, my dad was still impacted by the effects of that vaccine. Got it. And so, you know, and so people attribute side effects and negative effects to one incident where they're not fully sure of the inputs and they don't know what it can actually cause. And so, and they also perhaps don't have the level of awareness and education to actually get into the research and understand what has been done to either create that vaccine and store it properly and then disseminate it in a safe manner. And so it, I find that throughout my career, it always goes back to trust. And so, I mean, fast forward to working in a dementia unit, sometimes I would address it by speaking with the family and just having, you know, if if a mom is, for example, affected by Alzheimer's and we have her daughter and, you know, other family members there and they give her confidence that this is going to ultimately be good for her and it's going to provide a level of protection, then then that's great. Or we would sometimes find examples and say to the older population, say, well, if you get vaccinated, it will afford a degree of protection to your grandchildren because they can see you then safely knowing that 
you know, you have a level of resistance to the co- to the COVID virus. So those kind of conversations were very helpful. You totally just did grandma guilt. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Do you want to see the you, cute baby? You unteed her. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly it. <laughs> Although, interestingly, I had dinner with a couple clients, actually, this past week in New York. And interestingly, you know, they're not the auntie population. They are definitely between the 35 to 50 age group, financial professionals and things like that. And, and they- Orbashi, I'm, I'm sorry. That is the minimum threshold to entering the auntie. We are, we are in the auntie <laughs> uncle generation Wait. now. Oh. I had a friend's kid call me like rum and uncle. And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> We've arrived. Anyway, continue. that's true. <laughs> that's true. You're, you're hanging with your auntie homies in New York your City. Your auntie Got it. homies. <laughs> exactly. So we were auntie and uncling it up. It was, <laughs> and two of them said, you know, I really regret getting the vaccine. I really shouldn't have because somebody I know got a pulmonary embolism and somebody else I know had this thing happen. And so there is research behind the pulmonary embolism. And yes, the scientific community doesn't still know, you know, who is going to have an adverse reaction to the to the mRNA vaccine. And unfortunately, it did take some time to figure out with the J&J vaccine that, you know, maybe that that blood clots are possible. And then it was halted. Distribution of the J&J vaccine was halted. So when we ask the question, how much risk is tolerable in healthcare? I would say none. We want zero people affected by side effects, right? That's always the aim. But I think we have to be cognizant. So the people that actually have a negative side effect to these vaccines are very, very few as compared to the overall population that may have some pain in their arm, may feel the sniffles for a couple of days, and then they're just fine. So that's one. And the second thing that I would encourage people to think about is risk, just just risk as a subject and how we think about risk in our daily lives. So we have more risk of death when we cross the street or drive a car or anything else than we do with the COVID vaccine. Yet we think so much about COVID and we go th- we've gone through this whole sigmoid curve of low resistance to the vaccine listening to anecdotal evidence by people, other aunties and uncles that we might know, kind of, sort of, that had a thing or two happen. And now we're really regretting the fact that we got this vaccine, even though nothing has happened to us, right? And so what I think I would encourage people to evaluate is their response to the level of risk and try to rationalize that because ultimately the people that may be affected by some of these negative externalities are very very few in comparison to the broader population that is ultimately saved from the effects of long covid and other fatal fatal impacts you know the the metaphor that I've really been holding near and dear to me for the last couple of years around vaccines is that of a seatbelt. And, and when I was growing up in Alabama, we, you know, we didn't have national seatbelt legislation. I think it's state by state to this day, but I remember like, I, I actually think it might've been an ad on TV, people complaining about the seatbelt would wrinkle their shirt. These like minor inconveniences, right. Of why I don't want to wear a seatbelt. And the reality is it is a minor inconvenience 
but you don't want to get into a car accident not wearing a seatbelt, right? The data yeah. has proven. You don't want to get COVID when you're not vaccinated because it's a lot worse. And it's and the seatbelt thing holds true because if you get into an accident, it doesn't impact just you. It And there's the macro of, you know, the tax it puts on our system to, you know, have people rescue you and blah, blah, blah. But your family and all the multiple weeks of hardship. Like, I think about... COVID a lot, like hedging the risk, because if I get it, my family's going to get it. We're all at home. We're all locked up for four days together, right? So there's just like, it's kind of this like foresight that comes with insurance, seatbelts, et cetera. And I think it's that, to me, that's been the framing that's gotten me over the hump. But but I guess the, how do you communicate this to patients who are hesitant, who, who aren't coming from the same place that, that Sharon and I are, who yeah. don't want to wear their seatbelts, so to speak? Right. So if they're able to understand, and I'll say outside of the dementia population, so I, I've done this, I, I've communicated this way with the family members of, of the patient. And if the patient's able to understand, then I've communicated it this way with the patient. But I've actually gone into a little bit of the science to say, you know, this is an mRNA vaccine. And the technology is actually quite well understood. And it's been around for a while. This is just the first time it's been distributed on a mass scale in the form of a vaccine. But this itself is not new. And in a way, if you think about it, it's safer than introducing a dormant virus into your bloodstream, because an mRNA is essentially your, it's a messenger RNA. It's, it's not the virus itself that's been made it's the dormant. instructions right, right exactly it's just the instructions so so now your cells have a textbook that if they encounter if they encounter the bad guy then they know what to do whereas with a dormant virus the risk is potentially a lot higher because you do have cases of dormant viruses that can become active for example i think it was just last year that they found active polio viruses in the sewers of London. And then they did a whole scan to understand whether there were any cases of polio and they were not. But that's the thing. That's the risk that we need to communicate to patients that this is a potentially deadly disease and you are getting a safe a safe vaccine that is mm -hmm. potentially safer even from your other vaccinations because mm -hmm. it's simply the instructions. Right. You're saying there's not cow pus in this <laughs> Exactly. No cow pus. <laughs> Why don't they good, just leave that, with that? That's a good thing. Yeah. And now, a word from our sponsor, the Department of Health and Human Services. Oh, yeah. HHS has still got it. Have they got a cure for, for my holiday shopping blues? Sure. I mean, if you count preventing COVID as the cure for the holiday blues. Well, I guess it is that time again to encourage everyone to get their COVID vaccine. Oh yeah, vaccines. <laughs> you know, getting my vaccine card updates is like getting my subway card punched. If only it came with a free sandwich. I think it did for a while, uh, at least free donuts. But, uh, <laughs> you know, Sharon, getting your latest updated COVID vaccine is even better with the holidays upon us, especially if it means getting more time to safely catch up with your family. Ah, uh, yes. Updated vaccines now protect against the original COVID virus and Omicron, which means we all have more time to enjoy that home cooking and mom dishes that we've all been craving. Yeah, these latest vaccines are here just in time to make those family gatherings safer and extra special. 
Boom, just did it. Uh, did what? Find the perfect holiday gift for all your family, friends, and favorite <laughs> podcast co-hosts? No, even better. I just scheduled my free vaccine today. Oh, snap. That was pretty easy. Damn straight. Find updated COVID vaccines for everyone over the age of five at vaccines.gov. Just be sure to bring candy for everyone five and up. I'm a big fan of candy, for sure. Um, and our kids do like a good candy taster to, to go with all of their vaccines. Psh, kids, anyone five and up deserves a post-vaccine candy treat, <laughs> uh, present company included. It is the holiday season, after all. Fair enough. COVID is serious stuff, and we want to make sure all of you are ridiculously thoughtful, stylish, hip, and favorite podcast listeners are getting the latest and greatest COVID vaccines. Especially with those amazing holiday sweaters. <laughs> That's right, Sharon. COVID is still serious stuff, so we've all got to do everything we can to keep ourselves and the people we love safe. Let's all do our part to protect ourselves, our families, and our communities this holiday season. Talk to a doctor if you have any questions. You can find the latest vaccines near you at vaccines.gov. We can do this together. This spot was paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, who we are big fans of. But now, back to our show. But I do think the onus is on medical professionals over here. We all like to use, and me included, we like to use like big words, like yeah. significant and not well understood or remains to be seen related to X percent of the population, you know, like, so this is what I tell my friends in healthcare. Have you like, when was the first time you actually read a scientific study, like a research study? And we all talk about, you know, when that was, how, okay, maybe it was like in your third year of your undergrad, maybe you actually got involved in research, like in the first year of your master's degree or something. And that's when you started learning words like control and blah, 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 and, you know, how to evaluate a study and what population was it conducted on and to actually get into like the input criteria and the output criteria and the results and the conclusion. And what are the risks that even if you have a firm conclusion, what are the risks that are still outstanding and what are the no unknowns and what are the unknown unknowns, right? And so even reading scientific literature related to vaccines or any subject is a skill in and of itself that is taught to healthcare providers or people in general, no matter what you're studying, but it's a skill that's taught and learned and then implemented over time and refined. And so when you're speaking with anyone, I mean, whether they have a high level of education or they're or they don't. I mean, I would say my brother who's an engineer or my other brother who's a CPA, I would call them lay people as it relates yeah. to, you know, yeah, reading scientific re literature related to the cognitive rehab of long COVID. So, <laughs> so. And well, I guess so related to that, right? Like if we think about what's happening right now, it's the holidays. We're like literally going into the season. People are gathering, people are traveling. My own parents, sadly, they were supposed to visit us today. My dad actually just texted me and he was like, I was supposed to be on a plane today. My mom got COVID on Monday and because of that, they've had to cancel their trip. So lots of stuff happening in real time and among lots of lay people. <laughs> Most of us are lay people. We are not doctors. And so how would you – so a couple questions. One is we know there's an updated vaccine right now and there's also probably some – just misconceptions about, you know, if you've already been vaxxed and boosted, do you need to get this new vaccine or this updated vaccine currently? There's some, I think, you know, people probably aren't, aren't even aware that, that this exists. 
But secondly, how do lay people talk to other lay people about keeping each other safe? And what are your thoughts on that? So one is yes, you definitely should get vaccinated and boosted, especially at this time of year. And essentially what has happened with this update to the vaccine is that they have updated the instructions that they're going to provide yourselves to say, oh, we know that this virus mutates in the environment and learns, it learns about the human body and it becomes more adept at causing whatever it wants to cause. And so we have updated our plan of attack and we're going to introduce this to yourselves. And so this is the new vaccine. I think we need to talk about this in a manner that everybody can understand. And we all know in healthcare, we want to disseminate information at the fifth grade level. I think we actually need to do that because it has nothing to do with insulting anyone's intelligence. It's simply acknowledging that we are not all experts in the same thing which is healthcare or the same thing in healthcare. I'm not an infectious disease person or expert, and even an orthopedic surgeon is not. So we both will need to read up on what exactly is the update. We'll still try to get information from experts that are in infectious disease, and we'll try to communicate it to others in a manner that they're best able to understand. So one thing is to for the medical community to really communicate in a more effective manner and to patiently listen and walk through what the reasons for hesitancy are. So if somebody says, well, I read this study and it talked about pulmonary embolism and this person died because they couldn't get to the ER fast enough, then then you need to walk through that scary scenario with someone and say, okay, most likely that's not going to happen to you. But if you were to encounter such a situation, you need to look out for symptoms A, B, and C. Shortness of breath, if your, you know, if your blood pressure quickly accelerates and you don't have a reason for why, and you know that you got a certain vaccine, maybe don't rush to the ER, but get yourself a doctor's appointment. And it'll be really easy for you to rule out whether you're experiencing a side effect of the COVID vaccine or not. So empowering people with instructions for worst case scenarios, I think has been effective for me personally in my practice. And I've seen that being effective for my coworkers as well. And I think as a community, we need to do that more. And the second is for patients to be, or not patients, I would say people in general to be receptive. And and I'll say this broadly, we, we, we all find ourselves in different camps or different nodes of the internet, right? We all like to sit in our own little echo chambers. I'm on this side of Twitter and you're on this side of Twitter and I get my information here and you get your information from here. And that's what creates a bigger and bigger divide. And so I would say healthcare providers and patients or people in general need to be more receptive and open to listening and understanding each other's thoughts on this subject. Yeah, I think it's it's like equal parts care, equal parts stick, right? Like the the kind of the risk factor of the worst case scenario. And I really think about, you know, I was literally at in a meeting with a coworker the other day and she said, I've got to be really careful because I want to see my niece at her birthday party this weekend. And to me, that was, that was equal parts carrot, right? It's mm-hmm. like, do you want, I mean, 
we are opening back up. We are getting into this new normal. And if we want to have nice things, we kind of got to all kind of have collective responsibility. So I, I think it's kind of, we need both, if that makes sense. Like the worst that could happen is this. We've seen a lot of the worst that could happen, but but there is this light at the end of the tunnel. If we want to enjoy the light at the end of the tunnel, we we kind of have to make some really conscious, and they're not hard choices either, right? It's just... And some of it will be a little inconvenient, like the seatbelt. It might wrinkle your shirt. That's okay, you know, for a weekend for your arm to hurt. Yeah, I don't know. I, I like the way you're framing it. I guess it's so long and short of it. No, I think you're absolutely right. That's exactly it. The seatbelt is inconvenient, but also we need to know that the seatbelt does work. It's been proven absolutely. to work. And we recognize that this vaccine took a much shorter time to come out into the market in comparison to other vaccines, even the smallpox vaccine, for example, or how, however far back you want to go in history. But that's because you had the whole world stop what they were doing and channel all of their funding into one disease condition. Right. And a moonshot. Exactly. And one process, which is the vaccination approval process of the FDA, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> so look at what we can accomplish when... Every country, we put our minds to it. <laughs> right. The power of numbers and collective intelligence and funding has accelerated the development of the solution. And, that, and it, it's no reason to not have trust in it. Yes, we don't have chronological data. We don't have 20 years of information on every population subset. But we do have a degree of confidence. And I think, so actually, not to go on a, tire, tire, on a tangent, but... No, but I actually want to take you on a tangent with this because yeah. we don't have a lot of time, but there's something else I really want to talk to you about. What's up? <laughs> okay, that exact framework, right, that, that you just laid out, to me, that ties into like your other passion area. <laughs> and I know we don't have a lot of time, but you wrote a freaking book on a topic very related that has honestly greater long-term implications. So the name of your book, which... I've, I've skimmed and I would encourage people to check out the sustainability scorecard, how to implement and profit from unexpected solutions. That's the same MO to everything you were just saying. And so my original question somewhere in this podcast was supposed to be, hi, Dr. Urvashi, you're also doing stuff in sustainability. Why? But everything you just said leads me to understand why you got to this conclusion, why you had to articulate the points that you did in your book. It's, so I, I get... Can you give me the elevator of the book and, and a little bit more about the why and and almost like shortcut the answer? <laughs> Absolutely. I'd be happy to do so. Raman, and everyone listening, every firm is a healthcare firm. And every yeah. firm has an impact on your health and well-being by way of the externalities of our economic activities. Yeah. And yeah. so when we talk about the seatbelt, we potentially have higher risk of infertility because of the PFAS and all of the other chemicals in our groundwater that our filters are not able to take out than the COVID vaccine or anything else. And so for COVID, one thing we must do is, you know, get the vaccine and let's all practice good public health safety measures. But I think in order for us to achieve planetary wellness, I think exactly. we need a broader framework. I need. To, I, I think we need to evaluate how business is conducted and how we can roll out inherently sustainable products and processes into 
into our economic activities while still being profitable, right? That's the number one aim. And so that's what my book is about. There are some inspiring solutions out there, such as carbon negative vodka and carbon neutral aviation fuel, things that we thought would not exist until our kids had kids, Roman. And so we are able to do some pretty incredible things at this time in history. And I think we need more intentional, sustained investment into those kind of solutions such that we create long-term planetary wellness. Well, it's to kind of tie it back to vaccines, like, yes, it was like this miracle cure. And then cure is the wrong word, but it was this thing that was going to help us and, you know, frustrating that people didn't solve it. But there's a bunch of other solutions that we have to put in place to have a more sustainable solution. And when we come to like the climate, there's not going to be any one solution. Right. It's, it's collective action where we almost put this lens of sustainability in all of the choices and decisions we make, be it the way you make your vodka, the way you package your products before you ship them, the the choices you make on how you spend your time and the policies we want. And, and I, I just think, in, be it in healthcare or sustainability, it's we have to make longer term thoughtful decisions. I, I don't know. Absolutely. And and I think it's all about where the value is placed and how then incentives are created to drive, you know, intention and funding into where that value is placed. Yeah, at the, at the enterprise level, because exactly. you know, we talked with a lot of our guests. Yes, there's individual responsibility. But to your point, you have to create incentive models, be it tax credits, be it disincentives even, right, for businesses and enterprises. Because that's that's the only way you get to scale fast. You like totally cut to the chase, Roman. And I and that, that was he's really awesome. he's really good at that. There's right? gonna be another episode with you about <laughs> yeah. this. Don't worry. Yeah. But I, one other thing I think about this is I was reading about the book and the verticals that you're the most passionate about. And besides technology, you mentioned chocolate and gardening. And I'm curious to know in those two worlds of chocolate and gardening, how all of this applies to that, because I think that'll help our listeners to understand even on a day-to-day basis, how just looking at everything more bigger picture would be impacting them. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. That's so, thank you for that question. I love chocolate. We are all aware (laughs) that. (laughs) I do too. (laughs) Very good. (laughs) And look guys, we don't want our chocolate supply chain to be impacted. That's just the bottom line. We don't, we don't want the quality of the chocolate to be impacted and the amount and the flavor profile of your favorite chocolate. It shouldn't require more cocoa beans to achieve that flavor profile than it is now. So we don't want to drive Mm -hmm. up the cost of your chocolate. And the other thing is gardening. I just, I personally, I'm a grandma. I mean, I've already (laughs) achieved auntie status, but I, let me tell you, I'm a full blown grandma. I love gardening. I've loved gardening since I was five and it's one of my earliest memories. And and, I, and to this day, I like I get so excited, like, oh, my God, I'm going to plant sunflowers this summer and stuff like that. And I'm always amazed because the back of the box says, you know, this sunflower should achieve nine feet or six feet or whatever it mm-hmm. is. But I'm always underwhelmed because it achieves three feet or four feet. And it always brings me back to soil quality. What's in our mm. soil? Oh, and interesting. Yeah. Right. At a broader scale, this is about agriculture and whether we're deriving the amount of nutrition from our food that is really indicated on the back of the box. Because in the 1800s, before pesticides or whatever, you were 
of course, it was harder to produce that same fruit, but you were probably deriving all the nutrition from that fruit because it was made organically without right. pesticides and that kind of thing. And now today, our inherent soil quality has declined. It requires far more inputs in order to achieve the same nutritional status. And maybe you'll need more number of fruits to actually achieve the 3% of fiber that you were going for because the fruit is not the same. And so it's really, we really need to view our economic systems in a cycle and redefine the word performance. If something's just doing what it's intended to do, then it's not, it shouldn't be considered a great product. If it is doing what it's intended to do, but it's also socially and environmentally responsible, that's when you know that the product is really advanced and it's better than what you bought 10 years ago or 15 years ago, because truly innovation was put into weed out negative externalities and provide you something that is truly safe for you and safe for the planet, but also do its job. Well, you can't optimize for one variable, right? If you optimize for one variable, yield and cost, uh, there's a lot of unintended consequences, or as you said earlier, externalities that that people don't realize that like uh, this, this is like a completely different podcast episode (laughs) that I, we we absolutely should be having. And I'd encourage people to check out your book, but because I think you're, here's where I'm going to kind of tie the thread. Everything about your kind of holistic view and like long-term view with your patients, you almost tilt it on like the macro lens of the systems of the world that we live in. Right. And, and I think that's a, it's a really important framework. I, I almost, I kind of get how you got from point A to point B when, when we were first introduced, I didn't. And I was like, Oh, okay. She's just kind of pursuing a hobby. And to a degree, it's a passion project of yours, but it, it's applying these mental frameworks that, that you apply in your day job to, to the bigger existential questions that, that we have in, in the world that we're, basically have to inherit for the next 50 to 100 years. Exactly. And when people say, you know, well, we have embedded capital, we can't undergo that transformation right now because we have embedded capital, whether it's human or financial. Mm -hmm. I think what they need to do is really look at their long-term strategy and understand whether Mm -hmm. that firm is really going to exist in the next 50 Mm -hmm. to 100 years. And if Mm -hmm. they intend to exist and they need to acknowledge the risks to their business that are currently in front of them, for example, Generation Innovator's Dilemma. It's Innovator's Dilemma. Exactly. Exactly. You're absolutely right. Well, okay. So, Orvashi, I have kind of a different question. If we kind of go all the way back to Long Island and that little girl, given everything you know now, everything you've seen, and not just – it's not even a career pivot, but like all of the different ways you've applied your trade in your mind, what advice would you give to that little girl if if you could talk to her now? I would say to stay curious and to explore every rabbit hole because it all ultimately will come together. And I would say that to my son and anyone and his friends is to be inherently and forever curious because you never know where it's going to take you. And no, watch where you put your hands. Watch where you put <laughs> exactly, your hands. exactly. Don't stick your hand in motors, but otherwise you're good. Explore safely. <laughs> and you might be able to transfer solutions from one place to another, and you might come up with something brilliant that will disrupt the way we live our lives. That's amazing. So I, I guess, Sharon, I don't know. What do you think? We've covered a lot of territory with Urvashi. Do you think she's ready for speed round? I think, Urvashi, I think you've earned a speed round. Are you ready for speed round? Oh, boy. <laughs> I don't know if I've had enough coffee, but let's That go. is the right answer. So many guests <laughs> are just so arrogant coming into speed round. And yeah, 
They right think they're ready. Yeah, they think they're ready for everything, but sometimes, <laughs> sadly, they are mistaken. <laughs> All right, here we go. What's one thing about you that no one expects? I'm a Kim Kardashian fan. Oh my God, so am I. <laughs> are you? Oh my gosh, yes. I love it. <laughs> Look, yes. I think she's brilliant. I knew that she would be a billionaire one day and I was already planning her career because I thought, you know, Kim K, when you become a billionaire, you need to open your own impact investing fund. You need to work on issues that really matter and you need to keep that self-regenerating revenue and that comes from producing products uh, that make basic awesome, which is lipsticks and skincare and all mm-hmm. of that stuff. <laughs> You figured it out for her way before Kris Jenner did, huh? You I, you should you have know, been her momager. <laughs> I am the Kardashians' biggest missed opportunity, let me tell you. And she does have she does have a, a, a she's a partner in a VC fund right now. I don't know if you're aware of that. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, I yeah, do, yeah, I do yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, she's she's a, she's amazing. Or was she? What's a book or a movie that has characters that you relate to? Ooh, that would be Zootopia. So the bunny. Officer oh Hops. my goodness! Oh, yes, I see yes, it. Yes. I see it. <laughs> yes, I have way too much energy, and I exhaust most people. My husband says that I either terrify or delight most people I meet, and I'd say that's true. So he sometimes has to drag me away from conversations. Are you are you tiny in stature too? Are you like yes, I am. Oh, perfect. <laughs> Perfect. I'm a perfect 5'4", just like I imagine Officer Hops to be. And <laughs> and I love setting arbitrary goals for myself. Like, I'm going to achieve ABC by noon. And I'm yes. going to do it all perfectly. I don't know if you know, I, I, I was scrolling around Disney+, Plus, which my daughter is only allowed to watch on the weekend right now. But there's a Zootopia TV show. What? Oh, I didn't know that. I know. I'm going to check, so, yeah. check it out. I love that. Yeah. I love that movie. What is your favorite mom dish? Oh, my God. It's this Indian dish called garhi. Mm-hmm. It's basically chickpea, flour, and yogurt. And you whisk it together, throw it a pan, in a pan, and boil it. Takes no time, and my kid eats it, and it's great. Yeah. Well, okay. So it, it's always funny the way people answer that question. Is that your favorite dish as a mom to make for your kid? But do you have a favorite mom dish that your mom made for you? Or is it also that? Ooh, and it is also that. I, oh, I love it. So that that got passed down. Yeah, it did. But I I wish it was that emotional. It was really strategic. I was like, what if I need something <laughs> <laughs> that I know is going to work every time? And so I, I guarantee can... that's why your mom made it for you as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> What's your least favorite food? Oh, that's got to be paneer. I just can't get over it. Paneer and then I met its brother. I knew we were friends. I agree. I don't get it. What you do you know, guys have I'm against sorry, paneer? People. I don't understand. Why? Indian Why? people shouldn't eat cheese. We've already covered cheese oh, and yes, how weird right. it is. Yes. Like, and I, I love me some European cheese, but Indian people, come, paneer. Like, yeah. Exactly. You were right. Right answer. <laughs> I knew so there was like, a right answer for this. <laughs> paneer in your sog. No, thank you. No, no like, just not The sog's never. fine by itself. The sog's fine by itself. Agree. Really? Raman, we were Wait. meant to be good friends because so I'm, I'm obviously not Indian, but like sog without paneer or chicken or lamb it, or it's anything good. is just it's good. spinach, it's good. right? Like yeah. what? What's wrong with cream spinach? <laughs> with I guess nothing. 
<laughs> don't people right. eat collard greens? Yeah, Simply they do. As collard they greens. Do. We've just been programmed in the like here in this country that sog's got to come with something. Like <laughs> the cheese industrial complex wants you. We got to yeah, unplug from the matrix. The <laughs> you're right. You're right. I eat spinach by itself all the time. I don't know. I just felt like that was like atrocious. But you guys are totally correct. All right, you win. Who's someone out there that you'd want to talk to on a podcast? Ooh, I would like to talk to Scott Galloway. I think he's incredibly smart, and I are, you are like literally trying to be my best friend today. Like this is awesome. Keep yeah, going. Irvish, Go you on. Are, you're like another version of Roman, and like a little bit of hang on, smarter, like, smarter, more accomplished. Yes, true. And more that articulate. Is, I, I didn't mean to offend you, Irvish. You're right. Yeah, that's true. Thank God. <laughs> That's completely not true. Raman <laughs> is so engaging while my husband has to pull me away from people because I could go on and on. No, what's funny, when you said that about your husband, that's what my wife says about me. It's just so <laughs> We're like mirror universe, like, uh, yeah, twins. So Scott Galloway, go on. Yes. Tell, me, tell people why Prof G is awesome. Prof G is awesome because I love his analysis. He goes from a macro to a micro level very quickly and very well. And... Also, I know he disagrees with me, and I never met anyone that I liked more than a formidable adversary. So I want to convince him that the next high net worth, ultra high net worth individual or group of people are going to be those that invest in or create products for climate change. But didn't he, didn't him and Kara Swisher say that effectively? Like, Actually, Kara said that, and, ah. and and she actually got it from me, let me tell you. But Man, Kara G, and Kim just need to listen to you more. Exactly. I'm telling you. <laughs> I think Prof G disagreed. I believe that he is for investment in climate change, but I think he, I think we agree that it needs to be done intentionally in the right way and like, you know, packaging funds and just sort of creating surface level investments is not going to do the trick, and I agree with him on that, but, but I don't believe he's cracked the code on on how to create those investments and what those KPIs would need to be. And I think that's why he needs my book. Yeah, I think, you know, and you have a book and you should find a way to talk to him. It, it's one thing you both have in common is something you said you like about him. And I can see it. It's this, the macro and the micro, you know, he makes it personal. And so much of kind of what we've talked about today is about you making it personal. And so I guess that, that leads me to kind of the last question. What does being a modern minority mean for you? Oh, I think being a modern minority is all about finding commonalities when we're all looking for what sets us apart. And we've done that through history. And you can see that through every infographic where, you know, you can see voting patterns get more and more distant between the two parties over time or like selection criteria and purchasing behavior. I mean, we have every infographic that we could ever want. But I think being a modern minority is all about finding commonalities within our subgroup and also between each subgroup. That's great. Great answer. Thank you so much, Irvasi. This has been, I really do want you to come back again because I feel like we only touch on all of the things that you do, but certainly your book and, and other things. And I, I do feel like you're a different version of Raman. So we might even <laughs> cut him out of the conversation and maybe you and I just have <laughs> our oh, own I little girl it. talk. Yeah. <laughs> Raman, we love you. You're awesome, but I'm partial to Sharon. <laughs> Aww.
I'm all in. I need a break. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Orvashi, thanks so much for joining thank us Thank you today. so, so much. This was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks to our sponsor, the Department of Health and Human Services. Since we're in the thick of the holiday season and making time to catch up with friends and family, we want to encourage all of you to make time to get your updated COVID vaccine and stay safe out there. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.